I'm your producer, Todd Bertu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the Mariner's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, a parable that explains the relationship between distance and time. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international 14s, and crossed the Atlantic countless times, a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Godson. Thanks, Todd. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, Scott. What's the theme for today's episode? Well, today I'm, I'm, t- I'm talking about navigation, actually. Um, the beginning of time, the end of time, as I call it. And that comes from a phrase I picked up. Uh, I just created, I guess, in my head. Maybe it's been written somewhere else. But I was in Greenwich, England, and um, I was admiring the meridian, the zero meridian for going around the world. And I could jump from yesterday to today. I could be at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day. It just depended on which side of the line. I could be in both places at the same time by straddling the line. And so I just wanted to, because I've had requests uh, from a couple of people, I know that I mentioned that we, I was going to do something on navigation. And this is for uh, one of my big fans. Uh, I'm going to call her out. Nikki, you hear me. Um, she asked me to do something on navigation because she's very interested in doing it. So without further ado, I guess we'll do the beginning of time, the end of time, a little tiny tutorial on navigating set and drift. Todd here. Do you like what you're hearing? Do you wish there was a way you could thank us for all of our hard work? Well, now you can. You can buy us a coffee. That's right. Just go to ko-fi.com slash offshore explorer and you can buy us a coffee. I'll leave the link in the show notes so you can go to it directly. Scott and I thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. Thank you, Todd. This essay is called The Beginning of Time, The End of Time. I came upon the title actually while I was in Greenwich, England, which I found very, very fascinating and standing on the time meridian, GMT. So they have this uh, wonderful line that's embedded in the concrete and stone that is the exact meridian. And I stood, I straddled the line at first. And sometimes I jumped back and forth across the line. And it just tickled me pink that this arbitrary yet important designation of what is the beginning of time for Earth and what is the end of time for Earth. In other words, what is the beginning of the day and the end of the day? And how was that created? Uh, and it's state, it is what it is. It's, it's a part of our life. But it relates directly to navigation because there's two elements to navigation. And that's what I'm going to discuss today. 
And those elements of navigation are, the two primary elements are time and distance. So before the GPS, before Loran, before the Sexton, before the Astrolab, before the cross staff, the perception of time was a very different thing than it is in today's mind. Let me explain. Time has changed in the way we perceive it. What is it? What time is it? Questions like of that nature really didn't exist for many thousands of years for man. The day or the concept of the day was sun up, sun down. Watch the stars move across the sky at night, sun up, sun down. That was the, the, the greatest specificity of time for centuries. Modern concept of time is very, very, very specific. Time is essentially a mind exercise in incrementality. At the beginning of civilization, it was thought of in two increments, sun up and sun down. It was also thought of in terms of seasons, planting, growing, harvesting, wintering. The language of time before clocks was a language pocked full of references to distance. The average person understood distance more clearly as an increment. A farmer would define his time spent as, I plowed the lower 40 today. We rode one day and beached the boat at Sandy Cove. Everyone knows Sandy Cove is one day's rowing by 20 men in fair conditions. No one described the day as, it took us 12 hours to row to Sandy Cove. A little personal experience to illustrate my point about the emphasis of time and distance in these common experiences. You're driving to work. Normally it takes a half an hour with traffic. You take the freeway and a couple of side streets. You arrive at your workplace in 25 minutes. You've covered 12 miles from your doorstep to your front door. The modern measurement is to take 25 minutes to drive to work. You don't even consider that you traveled 12 miles. I would guess that most people only have a vague idea of how much they traveled. Now let's add a snowstorm. You're driving five miles an hour for the whole 12 miles. When you drive slowly, you suddenly experience the sense of distance. Your sense of awareness shifts to this state of perception of the actual distance. I live in Los Angeles, California, and the highways are notorious for traffic. I go to the airport frequently. I allow an hour and 15 minutes of travel time and pray there isn't an accident. Once it took me three hours to go 800 yards on the 405 interstate before I could exit. The other day I went to the airport and because of COVID, there was very light traffic. I made the trip in 20 minutes. I felt exhilarated by the accomplishment. I was pleased. My senses seemed pleased I made it so fast to the airport. The sense of time 
over avoidance of the experiencing distance, act like an aphrodisiac to my otherwise resigned emotional pattern. So in other words, the excitement about traveling that fast and covering that much distance was such a relief that I didn't have to go through and experience the four hours of getting there because of traffic, that sense of foreboding that experiencing distance has in one's life and the elongation of a task like that is a very modern concept because without time before clocks, that's all people experienced. The sun came up, the, the rooster crowed, you got out of bed, you went about your chores, the sun went down, you shut the door, you locked the door, you stayed by the fire until the sun came back up again. That was life. Life was what you did during the day, that distance that you traveled. So what I'm doing is I'm going to take speed and time and they're like, they're like flash characters in a continuum of human perception, organization and travel. Distance is that grubby little fact that uh, must be mildly considered as a factor in modern perceptive life. If I take a plane from LAX to London, I measure the entire trip in time. It took me 19 hours from my door to the hotel. Time just giggled as the speed tickled the clock. Distance wasn't an experienced quantity. Distance passed under my wings between glasses of wine and movie watching. When sailing, the characters, time, speed, and distance, change their makeup and dynamics. I would argue that today's sailor enjoys sailing precisely because they're experiencing differences in spatial awareness that time resides on a different plane. Unpredictable fluctuations of speed subservient to the capricious wind and tide, and the bold emergence of distance and a series of new descriptions specific to the sea, nautical miles, sea miles. Distance is king. Speed and time serve as bystanders in the royal court of spatial awareness. If distance were a character, it would long, pun intended, for the distance experienced. Logically, anything that prolonged distance would be a welcomed friend. Wind, current, sea state contribute to the reign of king distance. Before king distance lets its ego grow too much out of control, queen time whispers in the king's ear, wouldn't it be great? if all your subjects could know how much distance they've traveled. King distance could be celebrated, honored, and revered. Queen Time proposed an elegant solution. Divide the world into sections, and we'll call them latitude and longitude. 
they would be the children of King Distance and Queen Time. They would be able to tell you where you are at any point in the world. They would also extend King Distance's domain to the stars. The king was happy about more distance. Space, stars, infinite distance. He thought for a second, but the children would be bound to the earth. He was dismayed by this. Queen Time assured the king that in time, scientists would apply the same principles to other planets and even the bending curves of space in charts. King Distance asked Queen Time, where do we start? Why, answered Queen Time, with the beginning of time and the end of time? That seems like a long way for the children. Time is infinite as well. Queen Time answered with an elegant suggestion. Since all the world is round, we will start and finish at the same point. King Distance was suspicious. How can you have the beginning of time and the end of time at the same spot? Well, she says, there was a rather clever Greek called Eratosthenes of Cyrene. He figured the distance around the earth while standing in his garden in Egypt. Queen Time watched King Distance grimace. I know him. Queen Time went on as she tends to do. Aristosthenes of Cyrene is best known for being the first person to calculate the circumference of the earth. That's like 290 BC. King Distance smiled. He may have accurately calculated the distance from the earth to the sun and invented leap day. He created the first global projection of the world. If Columbus had listened, he wouldn't have believed the world was half as large as it was. King Distance inquired, how did he do it? How did he figure out all those glorious miles? Queen Time kept marching through her explanation. Eratosthenes then measured the angle of a shadow cast by a stick at noon on the summer solstice in Alexandria and found it made an angle of 7.2 degrees, or about 1 50th of a complete circle. He realized that if he knew the distance from Alexandria to Serene, he could easily calculate the circumference of the earth. Queen Time smiled. It would take another 1,600 years before the perception of time and the distance of the globe were accepted. To make sense of all this mathematics, think of a circle. A circle is made up of 360 degrees. Okay, you say, what is a degree? Fair enough. It's defined as one minute or a sixtieth, one sixtieth of a degree of latitude along any longitude. Today, the International Nautical Mile is defined exactly as 1,852 meters, about 1.15 miles. The derived unit of speed is a knot, one nautical mile per hour. Eratosthenes divided 360 
by 7.2 degrees and got 50, which told them that the distance between Alexandria and Cyrene, 500 miles, was 1 50th of the total distance around the Earth. So he multiplied 500 by 50 to arrive at his estimate of the Earth's circumference at 25,000 miles. And he nailed it. Are your eyes glassy yet? Queen Time asked. Simply put, 60 minutes to a degree and 360 degrees in a circle. Now Queen Time was beginning to get excited. There are 24 time zones in the world. King Distance was getting perturbed because he he likes to hear about distance, not what the Queen of Time has to say. Queen Time was afraid of losing King Distance's attention. The sun, the greatest traveler of all, distance personified. King Distance sat up and stretched a great way. The sun traveled across the sky at 15 degrees an hour. 15 divided into 360 gives you 24. There are 24 time zones in the world. Queen Time smiled without end. Queen Time was clever. Queen Time used King Distance to define them as partners. Without time and distance, there would be no speed. And this result quite satisfied the pair who were infinitely bound in a perfect marriage. So all this leads me to set and drift. In a nutshell, the set and drift calculations are simple. Your course is affected by wind and current. The calculations allow you to compensate within your course so that you arrive at your destination in the most expeditious manner. These calculations are great to know. Passing any kind of mariner's exam requires a mastery of the concept and the formula. It also requires a chart and a book on currents and tides. I know, I've passed the test several times as my my license grew in tonnage. However, what makes a sailor is not his math skills, although those are helpful, but his spatial awareness and observation. When you steer your boat, are you aware of how it floats? What direction is it drifting in? Have you observed the water rushing or not past a buoy, can, or none? Can you calculate in your mind the feeling of leeway? If you turned off your chart plotter and had to find the marina entrance at night, could you? Could you dock your boat in a thick fog at night without any visible landmarks or radar? Don't get me wrong, modern electronics are a godsend. I love modern electronics. I love staring at my speed and course for hours on end. I love studying the contours of the seabed. I love knowing that the bottom is shale and mud. I love knowing I'm in a thousand feet of water or 15 feet of water. All information is welcome. I'm afraid today's sailor is missing what I think is the real foundation of sailing 
is navigating with your senses and spatial skills. These things need development and feel and knowledge of how your vessel reacts in all sea states. An old-time sailor once told me there are two different kinds of sailors, analytical and feel. The feel sailor will always be faster, but the analytical sailor will win races. Think about that for a moment. I did, and I still don't know what he was talking about. <laughs> but here's an exercise you could do sailing in your home waters. First, check your chart and note all the lighthouses, smokestacks, and towers. Each tall object will have a signature number of lights, measured by frequency and or color or number. Outside LAX here in California, there's a cooling tower to a power plant that has three red lights visible for over three miles. Coming from Catalina Island, when I can first see them on the horizon, I know I'm roughly three nautical miles from Redondo Beach. I then look for the airport lights. There are a series of white lights that are actually street lamps just below the bluff that the airport sits on. When I see them, I have the smokestack directly a beam to starboard. I know I'm roughly a mile and a half from the marina entrance. Now, to make it more complicated, since I'm asking you to familiarize yourself with lights and navigation skill sets, next on the list of navigation tools is the chevron plant. The plant has stacks and many lights in the superstructure. If you see those lights, you're dangerously close to the minefield. The minefield is a series of VW-sized bus buoys used by oil ships from Alaska to offload crude to the plant. They have a tiny yellow light on top, which is almost impossible to see until you're right upon it. With luck, there will be a ship anchored there, so you can skirt to the ocean side and miss the minefield altogether. Once past the minefield, which I might point out has been the site of unfortunate deaths over the years, when drunken powerboaters racing back to the marina from a weekend in Catalina hit those buoys. So now we're getting close. I look for three high-rise buildings in the back. The marina spreads out in front of them. Next, I look for the flagpole, which is in the dead center of the breakwater. The breakwater has a north-south entrance. In this case, I'm going to take the south entrance. If there is one piece of advice for you to heed is memorize the lights and the frequency of your marina entrance. Please, it will help you. In America, it's red right returning. The rest of the world, port to port. That's the red port light to the light which is red. Understanding how these lights line up will eliminate any confusion. It'll make you feel more comfortable and more confident about taking your boat closer and closer to shore. In this case, when I am lined up to go to the south entrance, I can also see the lights for the north entrance, literally across the way. It can be confusing because they all look like they're sort of standing in the same uh, parallel next to each other. 
but they're not. So the lights have a different frequency. So get counting. And I say this to understand how all lights, especially lighthouses and all navigation lights, have a blinking code. The light, long, 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 short, short, long, short, short, long. If you count those, you can associate that number with the lighthouse and it will help you with your location. Then all you have to do is shoot the angle and literally you don't even need anything. Look at your compass, okay? And just sort of line up where that light is in relationship to the compass. Then check your chart. So if the light is say, let's say it's about 10 degrees off your bow and you see it and you've got the blinking, blinking, blinking lights, okay? You look at your compass, take your hand, just sort of line it, say, okay, that is, in this case, let's say it's 270 degrees. All right. Then you could go to your chart and you could measure it. Okay. You can get an approximation of where you are in relationship to that light. Now, there's another thing that's sort of interesting is because all the light houses and navigational lights have elevation included in the light. So in some cases, you'll see it's 50 feet or 50 meter or 20 meters or whatever. The, you know, th there's a measurement of height. You can use that height, okay, to give you a sense of where that distance is. Now, before there was any modern navigation, sailors would use the lights from the shore. That's why, like, the, the light at Alexandria was so famous. It was so tall. It could be seen for a hundred miles or 50 miles and this was a great distance that's for for a, a a galley rowing okay that light for 50 miles that, that might be a whole day's rowing so this was a very very important thing and if you go through europe especially in in india as well uh cities and towns uh love to build um towers and bell towers, and they had lights on them. And this way, sailors could use them to navigate and would know how far they are. You can literally take a pencil in your hand, measure the height of the light on the pencil, right, from a particular distance, lay that over, and if you know how tall that tower is, you can get how many feet, yards, meters, it is, and then you could calculate all the way down the coast and add up where you are in miles. Very simple. But we don't do that today because we just look down at the chart plot and go, oh yeah, okay, we're over here, we got to go left, got to go right. Okay. But if you have that sort of spatial awareness and you develop it, your sailing and navigation will be incredibly more relaxed. So in summation, all I want to say is, is that memorize where you are, figure it out in the day. If you go out for a day sail, take a look around. Use your chart plotter as a reference. That's great. No worries. Okay. Say, okay, that tower has three red lights that are blinking. Okay. They blink uh, every three seconds and the tower is 100 feet tall. Make a note of that in your mind. 
check it out. Write it down. That way, if you're coming back at night, which often a lot of us do, you know, after being sailing all day or going on a cruise, that way you know what that light is. Okay, you'll know your distance from that light, you have your course, and you'll be able to estimate your speed, okay, through the set and drift. Very simple, but requires a development of your spatial reasoning and understanding. So as you develop these skills along with your math skills, remember king distance and queen time are an infinitely stable couple. But beware of Prince Speed. He is the only one that can cause you real trouble. That was a very interesting story, Scott. I liked how you were able to personify and turn it into a parable about king distance and, and queen time and the relationship between the two of them. I thought that was a, an interesting choice. And also talking about how to navigate using landmarks and being able to you know bring your boat in at night, uh, you just using the, the lights, the blinking lights. Um, what, what inspired you to tell this story as a parable? As a parable? Um, well, I just, I think what happens is, is for most people when they sit and they start getting technical, like if you're not a math head or a math nerd, you start talking about time and distance, everybody's brain sort of goes Star Trek you know, they, you know, oh, the continuum and, you know, oh, it's altered space and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And nobody, nobody really sort of drops down into what's the basic stuff. It confuses pe people from the mathematical part of it to what the reality is. And the reality is, is that every boat floats and every boat is um, subject to the currents. It's subject to the wind and it's subject to its own leeway, which is moving off its course based on the on the wind and all of this stuff gets added in to figure out how to go from point a to point b in the most expeditious manner um there's a couple of ways you know it's just there's it's just something you do you you have a chart you do all the rest of that kind of stuff but what i wanted to do is make people understand or help people understand that um if, if you're a local sailor or out there, get to know your landmarks, get to know all the lights, get to recognize your lights in your marina so that whenever circumstances, especially at night, happen, you'll be able to say, okay, um, that's a green light. It blinks every second and a half, three times, then two seconds, four times or whatever the frequency of the light is. And you literally, if you have a chart or even a light book, you can navigate anywhere around any coast. As a small aside, I, I had a GPS. I came through into the med 
And uh, I left Gibraltar and suddenly my GPS failed. I had no GPS, I had nothing. So, and it was cloudy and I couldn't take a reading with my compass or with my sextant. So I was really stuck with having to sail pretty much by lights. And I, I remember the one light from, and I think it's Bizarret, uh, which is in North Africa. And the light is, is very, very tall. The lighthouse is very, very tall. And you could see it a great distance away. But it gave me almost 100 to 200 miles of location based on the light. And I could count them. And I literally sailed from Gibraltar all the way across the Mediterranean, all the way through Greece, all the way to Turkey, using lighthouses and counting lights and all the rest. And if you get into that, you develop more of a feel for sailing than the technical aspect of sailing. Yeah, and you and you talked about some of the different methods of navigation, like the sextant and the astrolabe. Um, and, you know, navigating by landmarks. But, you know, nowadays we have GPS and, and Wi-Fi. And I thought it was interesting how, you know, we, we credit what Hedy Lamar for, for coming up with GPS and Wi-Fi, which was invented to help stop the Nazis during World War II. Exactly. It's kind of an in- interesting fact. Um <laughs> But uh, how, how reliant are sailors today on, on this technology, on GPS and Wi-Fi and, and, you know, some of the other systems? And, you know, if you're out there sailing and let's say the GPS doesn't work, like what's, what do you do? Well, yeah, that's, that of course is the problem. And that's where most people would end up getting into a certain amount of panic. Um, because they're very reliant on the electronics. Now, as far as Wi-Fi, um, Wi-Fi works in different, along different coasts in different ways. I know in Southern California, we could probably be maybe 10 miles off the coast, maybe 20 miles off the coast at certain points, and the Wi-Fi will disappear. So you can't use your cell phone for doing anything at that point. But the GPS, will, you know, now today it's very reliable. Um, they used to have the GPS signal be interrupted by the military. Um, I had that happen many times going across the Atlantic where suddenly there would be no numbers or the numbers would be like they'd put you at the South Pole if you looked at them carefully. And it was just the government would scramble it every once in a while because they didn't have a fail-safe because missiles can be shot and very accurate using GPS. So, um, and that's what they, they do use GPS. Okay. But they have a different system for it now and it's, it's matured, but for the average boater, he's got his GPS, he's got his chart plotter and you could follow on your chart plotter with your radar. You can just virtually do, you could, you could drive in blindfolded if that's all you're looking at. And in fact, we used to dock, uh, when I ran a big cruise, uh, day cruise boat in New York Harbor, for a little bit of the season, we used to practice going into the docks by the UN, where the UN is um, there on the East River. Uh, we used to practice going in with um, uh, covers all around the windows, and we docked it by radar, and we mm. just brought the boat in using the radar. So, you know, there's there's technology is strong, and it's a good thing. 
but uh, I'm just trying through this last essay and podcast to get people more aware that they don't have to be reliant. And if they're not reliant on it, they become actually will become a better sailor by developing their feel. Yeah, that's great. And I feel like we could probably do a whole nother episode just about time in general because um, there's so much I, to cover there. I have I have plenty of episodes in mind for uh, navigating by the stars and, and I didn't even get into the stars and um, how to use a sextant, how to, you know, check yourself out, all this other kind of stuff. I mean, time, distance, navigation, um, different ways to look at charts and, and things to know about charts. Uh, these are all episodes in the future, but we can only squeeze in just so much before everybody's eyes start to glass over on huh. sailing stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it was great. Uh, so what do we have for next week's episode? Next week, we have a very, very special guest. Um, he's a very famous uh, photographer, Steve Lapkin. And Steve is a, a veteran photographer. Um, you probably know his pictures from all the beautiful uh, wooden boat pictures of, uh, of Rivas and all the rest of that. And we have a wonderful conversation about um, these objects of art, these just gorgeous power boats, sailboats. He's also a, 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 uh, he's also a photographer that, uh, does the America's cups. And, um, he's just, he's got a lot of interesting things to say. It's some really great stories. So if, if any of you out there is, um, enjoyed his pictures or enjoy the beautiful pictures that we try to put up, um, listening to how he talks about his pictures and about the experiences of shooting, it'll be a, it'll be a real treat. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette Wick-Williams, with additional music by Imanu Itomi and Tommy Twang. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas. <laughs>